All right, uh, before we jump into our passage, we're going to do kids. We're going to do what we do every Sunday. We're going to talk about uh, what we're going to talk about before we start talking about it. Actually, we're going to start talking about it as we start to talk about it right now with y'all uh, before we jump into the passage so you know where we're going. Okay, so kids, true story. True story. Uh, uh, an older pastor in our denomination named George um, uh, tells this story. Okay, there was a, uh, there was a 12-year-old girl this 12-year-old girl who got really sick with uh, cancer. She got really sick, and, uh, and when she found out she was sick, she made this notebook. She made this notebook, and she started collecting all her favorite passages in the Bible you know, to help her like, you know, pray through, just think through all that she was going through and how sick she was. Uh, and this, this is, you know, the sad part is uh, she didn't get better, and two years later, she passed. She died. Uh, and her family and her friends found her notebook. And they, they started going through it. They're seeing all these verses, all this scripture. They're seeing all these wonderful uh, passages about hope. And then they find this index card. And on this little index card in the middle of the notebook is written, The moon is round. That's all the card said. In the middle of her notebook with all the scripture, there was this one card that said, the moon is round. And they had no idea what that meant. And they thought about it, and they thought about it, and they thought about it, and they talked about it, and they thought about it, and they thought about it, and then it hit them. And they realized what this meant. Okay, so, uh, for a long time, they didn't get it, and then they realized, when it is dark, when you go outside and it's really dark outside, and you look up at the moon, and you see just this little sliver of light. You see just this little crescent. What do you still know about the moon? Even though you're only seeing that little sliver of the moon, you know what? The moon is round. And they thought about it, and they thought about it, and they realized that young girl who was suffering, who's dying of cancer, she believed even though she did not understand what Jesus was doing with her cancer, even though she did not, she didn't get what was going on and why she was suffering the way she was suffering, she still knew Jesus loved her. Just like you can't see the whole moon, I know it's round. She didn't know why things were so hard, but she knew Jesus had still saved her. She knew even though she was going to die, she was going to Jesus, and she was going to live forever. Hey, kids, how does she know that? How did she know that? The Bible, because the Bible tells us what? Come on. What does the Bible tell you? How do you know you're going to go to heaven no matter what? Because Jesus loves you. Because Jesus loves you. No matter what you're going through, you know that Jesus loves you. And you know that even though you die, you're going to live forever. Because what? Because Jesus... Somebody said it. Say it up there. Say it loud, William. Jesus loves us. And how do you know Jesus loves you? Because the Bible tells us so. And the Bible tells us specifically what Jesus did. And he did... Come on, kids, you know it. 
John William said it, and I think they said it up there too. He died for us. Kids, you know Jesus loves you no matter what because he lived for you and he died for you. And now nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus. Nothing can separate you from Jesus, not even death. That is what we're going to talk about today. The moon is round. It's an awesome picture of knowing whatever hard thing you go through in life, kids, Jesus still loves you and he has saved you. Today is Palm Sunday. We don't follow the church calendar super, super closely. It's, it's one of those, it's Resurrection Sunday every Sunday. That's true. Uh, uh, the past two weeks, we've taken a little break uh, from our series in First and Second Thessalonians. We're going to extend that break just by two more Sundays, Palm Sunday, Easter, next Sunday, and then we're going to jump back into our series. But remember, Palm Sunday commemorates... Uh, It remembers Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, palm fronds waving, hosannas shouting, uh, donkey riding into Jerusalem. Uh, And this kicks off uh, what uh, the church uh, calls Holy Week or Passion Week, because at the end of that week, Jesus is going to the cross. That's what it culminates in. Uh, So uh, we're going to look at that today. Uh, I'm preaching on John 11, uh, the first 16 verses. I've preached this uh, passage at three funerals, including my own grandmother's, uh, because this is my most favorite passage in the Bible. Yes, I have a fave. This is it. After listening to my uh, New Testament professor talk about this one day in class, that's it. This is my most favorite thing in the whole wide world. Uh, And yes, it does have everything to do with Palm Sunday and Easter. Please stand for the reading of our passage, John chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Uh, It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. The word of the Lord. 
Please be seated. Uh, this passage, it seems, it seems rather simple enough, uh, straightforward enough. Guy gets sick, and everyone argues over whether or not to go and help him, whether or not it's worth it. Uh, this is actually much, much more dramatic than that. And it raises some really big questions. And that's where we're going to start. Some big, big questions, then the big drama. Uh, Jesus gets word from two sisters, Mary and Martha, that their brother Lazarus, the one whom Jesus loves, is very sick. And Jesus is very close to this family. We know this from other passages that Lazarus is like a brother to Jesus. Mary and Martha are like sisters to Jesus. So, it's super, super bizarre the way John narrates in verse 5 that Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was at death's door, he does nothing. Jesus stays put. And that does not sound like love. Later in this passage, when Jesus shows up at the tomb, Lazarus has died, he begins crying for him. And it's that famous shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept, it's that one. Uh, and when the people, right after that, when the people see Jesus weeping at the tomb of Lazarus, the people say in verse 36, the same chapter, see how he loved him. So close, but oh, so, 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 so wrong. Jesus loved him in the past tense. Not true. Uh, I know it says in verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. But if we remember our Greek, let's remember our Greek, and we remember that Greek tenses are indicated differently uh, than they are in English, and that English tenses are, are actually even more complicated than past, present, future stuff. That's true, too. Uh, that right there in verse 5, <clears throat> when he says, Now Jesus loved you know, Martha, Mary, Lazarus, that is not referencing Jesus' love for that family in the past tense. And you know that you don't even have to know Greek to know that because you know right there in the very next verse, it's made perfectly clear, it says this, He loved them, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. It's his present love for Lazarus, for those sisters, that makes him stay put. Okay, now a little more fun Greek here. Uh, the word for love in verse 5 uh, is not the same word for love that's used earlier uh, in verse 3. The word for love used in verse 3 and then again in verse 36, oh, see how he loved him. Those are the same words for love. And this is because John is trying to subtly point up a contrast right here. In verse 3, Lazarus is the one whom Jesus loves. In verse 36, the people say Lazarus is the one who Jesus loved. It begs the question, is Lazarus still the one Jesus loves? Yes. Thank you. And you can, thank you. Yes. Yes, and that means, and that means that the love of Jesus does not mean, the love of Jesus for you does not mean you should expect to have your best life now. Jesus' love does not mean 
that you are not going to have trouble, that you are not going to have suffering in this life. Jesus, the one whom you love is sick. That is all true. Lazarus is really sick, and Jesus really loves him. And Christians, we have a hard time with this. We don't, we don't like this. Which is why we find ourselves saying, or at least thinking, in our suffering, you know, I've, I've given my life to Jesus. And if he loved me, I wouldn't be sick. Why am I sick like this, Jesus, if you love me? Why am I hurting? Why would you give me this loneliness? Why am I suffering? Why am I in trouble? Right here, it is completely clear. The one whom you love is sick. People that Jesus loves, they do get sick. They do suffer. They do get hurt. They do face trouble. They do face loneliness. They do go through persecution. And we want to ask, how does that work? And Jesus knows that you want to know, and he knows his disciples want to know, how does that work? Why is that? And Jesus explains, right after this, y'all, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. There it is. If Jesus loves you, if you are his, suffering will come into your life and God has awesome plans for what he's doing in your life and in the lives of those around you through your suffering. I know, I know, what, Christian, I know what Christians do with this. I've heard, I've heard this, uh, that Christians will say to other people, to other Christians in, in terrible, tr who are in terrible trouble, things like, it's going to be okay, God has a plan. And I know that sounds like a pat answer. Okay? But it's, it's much more, it's much more of a pat answer to say or to believe that only bad people should suffer. That good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. It is even more of a pat answer to say, uh, it's unfair if good people suffer. Let's just say it, the problem of evil and suffering, that is, that is a problem. And it's a problem that we in the church should be prepared to answer. But to conclude that if God were all-powerful and if he were all good, then good people would not suffer. Therefore, God must not be all-powerful. That is a pat answer. Or that God is not at all loving. Pat answer. Or there is no God. Totally, completely rubbish. The answer the Bible gives how does this work? Jesus loves you, Angela. The Bible, the answer gives. It is deep. It is profound. It is awesome. That your suffering does not mean God does not love you, and it does not mean that your suffering is meaningless. Jesus says here, there are hundreds, there are thousands of purposes. 
There are hundreds of purposes for your suffering that are intimately interwoven into all the other purposes of every other incident in your life and the lives of those around you and the lives of those who you will never actually come in personal contact with. And all those purposes are being woven together by God for the ultimate purpose of revealing Jesus' glory and his love in your life to you and through you. That is the only answer. That is the only answer to suffering that's not a bad answer. It's the only good answer there is. And an understandable, an understandable objection goes like this. Okay, okay, okay. How does my pain, my suffering, show forth the glory of Christ? Because I've got to tell you, I don't see it. Sure, I can look at Lazarus. Great, I can see it here for him. Good for him. It's great. I'm so happy for Lazarus and everyone around him. And what about me? That is an understandable question, objection, but, but that is basically reverting to saying, somehow believing, my suffering is pointless. And you need to know that your suffering is not pointless. <clears throat> Does your suffering test your faith? Mm, yes. Okay, and your suffering confirms your faith. Because your suffering exposes the finiteness. I don't know if that's a word. It makes sense. Uh, the finiteness of you. It exposes uh, this life, this earth, the, the earthly pleasures and comforts that we have. They are limited. They are finite. They are fleeting. Your suffering exposes the reality that you, that you, you are, you're fragile. It exposes the truth that you need saving, and it exposes who alone can save you. That's what your suffering does. <clears throat> losing your job, losing your health, losing your loved ones, those great things that give you comfort, those wonderful things that give you security, those things that you love that give you safety, you lose those things and you have this aha moment that you are not actually in control and you never were. And by God's grace... This suffering draws you away from that stuff. That stuff that cannot save you and it draws you to the one who can, Jesus. <clears throat> when you've got everything and everything is going your way, is your need of Jesus in front of you? No. Be honest. No. And you know this. And suffering breaks that delusion, that prosperity, that control is the attainable dream. C.S. Lewis, <clears throat> old uh, uh, Cambridge, Oxford uh, Christian philosopher, author, he said this about pain. He said that pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Your, none of your suffering is meaningless. And 
suffering it changes you it always does you never stay the same you don't you, you never stay the same with suffering suffering either makes you harder and more bitter or suffering makes you more loving and it makes you more humble your suffering is not pointless we we this sounds crazy we have got to look at our suffering like a means of grace that's what it is you don't see the point to your suffering like you see Lazarus's, and that's okay because you are not at the end of your story and you may not see the point of your suffering before your death and that's not a problem because your death is not the end of your story the end of the story is, is at the end of all things, when Jesus returns, suffering death, that's going to be swallowed up in victory. It's going to be swallowed up in love. It's going to be swallowed up in resurrection and glory. Let's see if I can get it this way. Uh, I'm not a sailor, but I've been told this is true. <clears throat> if you're sailing at sea, which is a nightmare of all nightmares because that's where the sharks live. Um, if you are sailing at sea uh, and a big storm comes, and you let go of the rudder, you're done for. Uh, uh, you will either sink or you will be lost. You will be totally thrown off course. But if you hold on to the rudder, the storm will carry you and push you faster, faster along to your final de destination than it ever would have if the storm had never come. So let me say this. I know, I know each and every one of you has troubles. I know it. Uh, and, and I heard this from uh, another pastor this week, and I really needed to hear this. Uh, small troubles and small sicknesses are small opportunities for growth and for change. And big problems are big opportunities for growth and change. So today, today you are facing that. And the question is, which way are you going to go? The big, the big so what, the big uh, application of all this uh, is, is really an attitude about your identity. Isn't there, there is, there's, nothing, there's nothing else that's going to truly solve people's sense of worthlessness uh, people's sense, this feeling that you're insignificant in the midst of this broken life, nothing else is going to solve that for you than Jesus's love for you. But the prescription today, the prescription today from all, all kinds of leaders, all kinds of parents, all kinds of societal and cultural leaders is learn to love yourself whoever you choose to be. And then what you got to go do is you got to go out <clears throat> and you got to demand recognition from everyone else. Not just tolerance. No, you got to demand validation and you got to get approval for your chosen identity and whoever denies you that approval of your chosen identity is doing violence to you. And that is where your self-worth will come from. That is how you will secure your true identity. And I say this with all love, that's nonsense. And it doesn't work. That, is the, that idea is the pick yourself up by your bootstraps idea. 
which someone pointed out to me uh, like yesterday, did you know that actually is impossible? And it reminded, it reminded me of this scene that has stuck with me since I was a kid. There was this cartoon show, and the dad character was not the brightest. And he accidentally walks into a, this is a cartoon, cartoon show. Uh, the dad accidentally walks into a tar pit. And his wife and the kids, they freak out and they yell for someone to get a rope. And the dad responds like nonchalantly, no, 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 that's okay. I'm pretty sure I can struggle my way out. First, I'll just reach in with my arms and pull my legs out. Now I'll pull my arms out with my face. And down he goes. And, you know, <laughs> that's, that's the idea. That's the idea of learn to love yourself, and that will get you out of this terrible mess. No, it won't. No, we actually do need someone outside of us to affirm that we're worth something. But... The problem with other people is that ultimately they're contradictory uh, and not completely 100% reliable, and they're also uh, not good either. And so ultimately, the best that we can do with each other <clears throat> is say to one another, hey, you're screwed up and I'm screwed up. Let's be screwed up together. And that is good. Like We, that, we need that. That is what we need to do with each other. And that is good, and that is necessary. Uh, but <clears throat> that will not uh, get us all the way. That's not enough. What, you, we what we absolutely need in the middle of this broken life, what we need in the middle of our trouble and our suffering, is God himself in the person of Jesus saying that, yes, yes, you're suffering, and I love you, and you are everything to me. This is the fundamental identity that Martha and Mary ascribe to their brother, Lazarus. Lazarus is the one whom Jesus loves. That's what they say. This is also the fundamental identity that John, the gospel writer, takes for himself. Did you know, did you know that John never identifies himself as the gospel writer? Instead, he refers to himself twice. In chapter 13, after this incident, because I think he learned this from this incident, in chapter 13 and then in chapter 20, he describes himself, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. As in John finds his true identity in the fact that Jesus loves him. That's who he is. And, and we take that, we sway way, way too often take that the wrong way. That does not, he, is, he does not mean that he's the one Jesus loves more uh, than anyone else. He's the, he, he's the one who's like super duper, uber close to Jesus. The one, he's the one who Jesus actually loves. No, that's not what he means. He's leading by example. And he's saying, this is my identity. It's your identity too. You are the one Jesus loves. That's every follower of Jesus. Which means uh, you're not your job. Uh, and your uh, unemployment and your underemployment, that does not define you. Wives, mothers, husbands, fathers, sons, daughters, brothers, sisters, boyfriends, girlfriends, singles, widows. You are more than those relationships. Wonderful relationships. You're more. 
You are so, so much more than a political party. You are not essentially your nationality, your ethnicity, or your race. You are not where you went or where you are going or whether or not you ever went to college. I'm thankful for that. Uh, you are not your cancer. You are not defined by your suffering. Your identity does not equate to whatever hardship or trouble that you are facing right now. You are the one whom Jesus loves. And this is where you get to put that identity into action, into practice uh, every single day and throughout your day if you so choose. The other big so what, other big application of this, he's got an attitude and it's an action. And it's prayer. Hear me for two seconds. Oh my gosh, we're going to talk about prayer again. Mary and Martha are in trouble. Their brother is in trouble. And so they send a message to Jesus. That is what prayer is for us today, simply. And if you pray like Martha and Mary, this will absolutely change your prayer life. The basis of their appeal to Jesus is not based on whatever they have done for God or for others. They don't say, you remember that time I anointed your feet with that super expensive stuff? They don't say, Jesus, I've been living a holy life. Uh, lately, I've been living that ethical life that you talked about. I've been kind. I've been patient with others. I have held my tongue when I didn't have to. Uh, I, uh, I've been very considerate of others. I'm on the right side. Uh, I'm on the correct side of this political moment in which we live. I'm on the correct side of this social justice moment in which we live. I go to the right church and I serve. I have done good for others. So please, please do this thing for me. Please do good for me. Please help me. Loved ones, if that's how you pray, I, 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 I have to imagine you don't pray very often. And when you do pray, if you pray like that, if you pray some form of that, you couldn't possibly pray with much confidence because deep, deep down, we all know we're actually not good. We don't love God. We don't serve God or others the way we should. But look closely. Martha and Mary do not base their appeal to Jesus based on their love for him, and they don't base their appeal to Jesus based on Lazarus' love for Jesus. They base their appeal on Jesus' love for Lazarus. Jesus, the one whom you love, is sick, and that is how we have got to pray. You have got to pray for yourself, and you have got to pray for others this way. Jesus, the one whom you love, I am in a really bad way, and you love me, so help me. The one whom you love is suffering, and I need you. The one for whom you went to the cross needs you right now. Loved ones, take up that identity. Always pray like that because that is who you are and that is exactly what Jesus is doing right here. Here's the drama of this passage. For the whole Gospel of John, 
for the entire, from beginning to end, 21 chapters, I think, uh, for all, you know, the whole gospel of John, this is the calm before the storm right here. These 16 verses. This is the eerily calm on the sea. Too calm. Too still. The storm is coming. You know, think of every movie scene. It's quiet. Yeah, a little too quiet. And then ambush. Think Christmas morning before anyone is up. Think 2019. This is the calm before the storm. This is the crux. This right here, these 16 verses, this is the hinge of John's gospel. These 16 verses. When Jesus hears Lazarus is sick, he, say, he says that he's staying put. And then two days later, Jesus decides it's time to go to Judea to see Lazarus. And Jesus' followers, they freak out. They legitimately have panic attacks. And they remind Jesus that they just left Judea and they left because they were nearly stoned to death by the people there. But Jesus says he's still got to go and there's a lot more arguing. And Jesus finally, he just, he explains, y'all, Lazarus, he's dead, he's died. I've got to go and wake him up. And then Thomas says, let's go die with him. This is doubting Thomas, not being doubting Thomas. This is courageous Thomas. He means it. He'd rather die with Jesus than live without him. The disciples have already warned Jesus. It is a death sentence to go back to Judea. And the disciples are not making this stuff up. If Jesus goes back to Judea, he is going to be killed. You cannot keep going back to the same murderous situation and get away with it. And here's the spoiler. If you keep reading to the end of chapter 11, Jesus shows up four days later. Lazarus is dead. He goes to the tomb and he raises Lazarus back from the dead to life. And then right after that, tons of people go home and they tell the Pharisees, they tell the religious leaders, they tell everybody no. What happened? And the response, this is the response. The Pharisees call a special meeting and they make the final decision to kill Jesus. Verse 53, this is the very end of chapter 11. From that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. Too many people are going to follow Jesus now because of this miracle. Uh, so his enemies begin. They, that's it. Final straw. Done. And here in our passage, before all that, the disciples are warning him, only bad things could happen if you go back there. Jesus knows. He knows this. He knows that if he goes and he raises Lazarus, he is forcing the hand of his enemies. He knows what will happen if he goes back to this town. It will ultimately lead to Jerusalem and to the cross. And John, the gospel writer here, he goes out of, out of his way to put this event, to highlight this event right in the way of everything else that leads up to Jesus' crucifixion. This is why everyone got this is because of this miracle. This is why everyone gathers outside of Jerusalem when he makes his way in. This is why there is a triumphal entry. This is why everyone is freaking out, shouting, Hosanna. This is why, uh, uh, this is why he goes all the way. It's as if John is saying he cannot believe the other gospel writers left 
this out. And his point is that just as much as the trial, triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, just as much as that temple cleansing <clears throat> later, the raising of Lazarus, that is the beginning of the end. It's the last straw for Jesus' enemies and what causes them to conspire once and for all, no going back, we're killing this guy. That's why this is the turning point of John's gospel. That's why this is the hinge of the whole thing right here because Jesus has two choices. Jesus can stay where he is and he lives and Lazarus dies. Or Jesus goes to Judea and Lazarus lives and Jesus dies. And he goes. He chooses Lazarus. Jesus knows that in going to Lazarus, he's sealing his own doom, and he goes because Jesus really, really, really does love Lazarus. And what the disciples can't see is that Jesus is not just sacrificing himself for the good of Lazarus. <clears throat> he's going to Lazarus for the good of his disciples too. Jesus knows that the road to Judea to Lazarus, it will lead him all the way to Jerusalem. It will lead him all the way to the cross, which means Jesus' choice here, loved ones, it is cosmic. <clears throat> Jesus can stay where he is, and he lives, and we die. Or, Jesus can go to Judea and to the cross, and we live, and Jesus dies. And Jesus goes. When Jesus enters the town of uh, Lazarus, he knows there's no going back. This road keeps going. He goes through those gates of Jerusalem and to the cross. Jesus goes to the cross to defeat death for Lazarus, for Martha. He does it for Mary. He does it for his disciples, and he does it for you. And he does it for me. We cannot avoid all suffering and we cannot overcome death, but our Lord and Savior, he has done it. And he will not leave you in the grave. Hosanna in the highest. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for what your word reveals to us. Uh, so clearly that even though we suffer we are your loved ones and that is that is hard it will be hard to make sense of that as uh, we come out of prayer it will be hard to make sense of that as we walk out the door it'll be hard to make sense of it tomorrow and the next day and the next day we pray that you would help us hold on to this promise that even though we suffer you love us and you love us more than we will ever know, and we will sing and praise and talk to you forever about how much you love us, and we still won't know forever and ever how much you love us. We long for that day when we can see you again face to face, when we can hear your voice, when we can walk by sight and no longer walk by faith. As we long for that day, we pray that right now you would sustain us in this faith. 
as we take it uh, today and tomorrow and the next day, longing for your return, uh, uh, looking at one another and looking to the skies with hope. Give us that kind of faith, we pray, in your love. In Jesus' name, amen.